Welcome to the Russian Rulers History Podcast, Episode 102, A Collective Leadership Takes Control. Last time, we recounted the erratic behavior of Nikita Khrushchev, which eventually led to his removal from power. Taking control of the Soviet Union were three protégés of Khrushchev, Alexei Kasigin, Nikolai Podgorny, and Leonid Brezhnev. The leadership of the country after Nikita's ouster was a collective one at first. Brezhnev was considered to be but a placeholder, as his personality was quite drab and he was not very charismatic. The problem with all of the members of the Politburo was that none of the others had great personalities either. Kosygin and Podgorny were brought into the power structure by Brezhnev in order to gain their support for the coup. This lack of a strong, charismatic person to lead the nation was a direct side effect of Stalin's purges. All the men in the Politburo and Central Committee were greatly influenced by the fear Stalin generated, and they had developed a mentality to preserve their positions and lives by not standing out and having ideas of their own. They were trying to live their lives towing the party line. The problem is, they now controlled the party line, but where would they go with it became the question. Now, at this point, I'd like to step back a little and cover the background of the three men who would vie for leadership of the Soviet Union, Brezhnev, Kosygin, and Podgorny. Now, there are some who would not include Nikolai Podgorny, but from my research, I would have to disagree. Anyway, let's start with Kosygin. Alexei Nikolaevich Kosygin was born on February 21, 1904, in St. Petersburg, Russia, to a working-class family led by his father, Nikolai Ilyich, and his mother, Matrona Alexandrovna. During the Russian Civil War, he was drafted into a labor army on the Bolshevik side. In 1921, he was allowed to enter the Leningrad Cooperative Technical School. Three years later, after graduating, he headed to Siberia, where in 1927 he joined the Communist Party and entered the Leningrad Textile Institute. From here, Kasigin began to move up the ladder due to his administrative skills and the gaping holes opened up due to Stalin's purges during the Great Terror. He was also helped along by his new patron, Andrei Zhdanov. During World War II, he helped organize the moving of industrial equipment east away from the invading Nazis. He returned to Leningrad during its siege and helped organize the construction of a supply route through Lake Lagoda. This led Stalin to notice the young man and would eventually lead him to become a candidate member of the Politburo from 1946 to 1949 and a full member near the end of Stalin's life. Now, during the late 1940s and early 1950s, he was part of a troika in Leningrad with Nikolai Vozhnezhensky and Alexei Kuznetsov, two men who were put on show trials in the Leningrad affair. Lavrenti Beria and Georgi Malenkov set up the two men who were executed. Very little is known on how in the world Kosygin survived, as he was supposedly one of the targets, but somehow he did, likely due to Stalin's protection. When Stalin took Kosygin under his wing, so to say, the leader sent Kosygin into the homes of the Politburo members to have them uh, clean up their financial acts, as they were known to be a little overly extravagant 
which was an image Stalin despised. Because of this role, he became quite unpopular and worried about his standing and life. In his memoirs, Kasigan recounted that he constantly told his wife what to do in case he didn't come home from work for a two-year period shortly before Stalin's death. Such was the depth of his paranoia. Now, after Stalin died, the Politburo was shook up and all the new appointees were kicked out, with Kosygin being one. Malenkov, who targeted Kosygin during the Leningrad affair, became the power broker which caused Alexei to be ousted from his positions near the top. When Malenkov was pushed aside by Khrushchev, Kosygin made a comeback. As he was a strong supporter of Khrushchev, he was able to stay close to the pinnacle of power. When the anti-party coup failed and Malenkov was sent into exile, Alexei moved up yet again. But when Khrushchev was removed from power, Kosygin reached for the sky as he took over as the chairman of the Council of Ministers, a position he held until shortly before his death in 1980. Now the next member of the Troika we will talk about is Nikolai Viktorovich Podgorny. Born on February 18, 1903, in the city of Karlovka in the Ukraine, where he stayed until 1926. He was very active as a young man after the Russian Revolution, and was one of the founders of the Karlovka Komsomol, a Bolshevik youth training organization. Over the years, Podgorny gradually moved up the ladder, given his engineering training and leadership skills. His main jobs were to bolster Ukrainian agriculture and overall economy, especially after the devastation of the post-World War II years. During the ensuing years after Stalin's death, he continued his rise through the Communist Party, gaining the eye of Khrushchev, who made him his protege, kind of acting as a counterbalance to Leonid Brezhnev. Due to the poor harvest of 1961, Khrushchev blamed Podgorny, and he fell out of favor. That is, until the bumper crop of 1962, which was wildly successful and brought Podgorny back to the top. Khrushchev now saw him as his potential heir. This knowledge caused Brezhnev to have to speed up the process of ridding the country of Khrushchev's leadership. So now we come to the third part of the collective leadership troika, Leonid Ilyich Brezhnev, born on December 19, 1906, in Kamensko, Ukraine, to a working-class family. He grew up to become a metallurgical engineer, although his education was spotty at best. By the age of 14, he joined the Red Army during the Civil War. But from what I've gathered, he really did not participate in the war itself, despite uh, the propaganda when he became the sole leader. In 1923, he joined the Komsomol and by 1929, he was a full-fledged member of the Communist Party. The Great Purge of the late 1930s opened the door for the young Brezhnev to move up the Communist ranks rather rapidly, despite a lackluster performance to date. His service during World War II was exemplary, and when he left the Army, he did so as a major general, although he did not lead a military unit. He was mostly involved in the logistical end of the campaigns and kept an eye on the troops as the uh, political liaison. As with Kosygin, Brezhnev was one of the young guns bought up by Stalin while he was planning his next purge. By 1952, Brezhnev was a full-fledged member of the Central Committee. By 1960, Brezhnev became the chairman of the Presidium 
and was being groomed to be Khrushchev's successor. Still, Nikita had to make sure that he wasn't too sure of his position, which is why he also gave favors to both Kosygin and Podgorny. Brezhnev became secretary of the Central Committee in 1963, and then second secretary in 1964, making him second in command. All this was happening while the conspiracy was afoot. Brezhnev was likely the point man in the coup, but he moved cautiously. But as I mentioned in the podcast about Khrushchev's end, he had an ace in the hole. Vladimir Semichastny, the head of the KGB and the man Khrushchev relied on to warn him of a coup attempt. When the coup finally succeeded in ousting Khrushchev, a number of Central Committee members wanted the now ex-leader arrested and punished, some wanting him executed. It was Brezhnev who protected Nikita, saying there was little need to further harm the man. His ouster and the plan to keep him under house arrest and away from the Kremlin and any power was punishment enough. There was a true sense of relief within the Soviet power structure that the erratic ways of Khrushchev would be turned into a more stable and reliable structure using a collective leadership style where everyone's opinion would be taken into account. In hindsight, we see gr the groundwork for what would really happen, and that is the era of stagnation. As I mentioned before, Stalin had left the Soviet Union with a leadership that was bereft of personality and ideas. What he created was a large number of yes-men, but who were they to say yes to? Former KGB head Alexander Shalepin saw the problem, and in 1965 he made a bid to become the supreme leader. Because of certain rules put into place after the coup was pulled off in 1964, a plenum of the Central Committee forbade it for anyone to hold both the office of General Secretary and Premier. This was done to make sure no one man could hold all the power to avoid the problems that Stalin and Khrushchev had created when they held power. Because of this, and a failure to garner enough support within the Central Committee, Shalepin failed to gain the upper hand, and by 1967 he was removed from office entirely. By 1965, the leadership was an oligarchic one. For those not familiar with the term, an oligarchy is a form of leadership where the power is focused on a small handful of people, namely Brezhnev, Kosygin, Podgorny, and to a lesser extent, Mikhail Suzlov, who was the secretary of the Central Committee. Whereas Khrushchev consulted no one in the Soviet hierarchy, the Troika now in power consulted everyone. This was a consensus-driven oligarchy, and its first order of business was to repeal many of Khrushchev's reforms, especially the one where the party was split in two. Another group that was real happy with the change in leadership was the military. As we shall see in the coming weeks, no one benefited more than the armed forces and the military-industrial complex surrounding it. Not only did the party overturn a number of Khrushchev's reforms, it began to systematically clamp down on dissent. The KGB, under its new chief, Yuri Andropov, began to revert back to the times of Stalin, but without the extreme violence. Any group that fostered dissent was infiltrated and members arrested. And Trumpov's replacement of Sema Chastny was a bit of a surprise to outsiders, as the former KGB head was the linchpin in Khrushchev's overthrow. 
Without his help, Nikita would have been told of the plot way before it occurred. So why was he sacked? Well, it was his backing of Shalepin, the one man who threatened the power of the ruling Troika. Now firmly in power, the leaders had to focus on the economy. The eighth five-year plan was enacted in 1966, and it would prove to be one of the most successful of the 13 five-year plans put together during Soviet history. Now, what I found strange is how little has been written about the plan itself. There was a book out there by Bacon and Sandal that supposedly covered it, but when I saw the cost, it was just a little too rich for my taste, so I'll just cover the basics of what I found. From 1966 to 1970, the output from factories and mines was 138% greater than in 1960. Agricultural output averaged a 3% gain each year, but still was woefully short of what was needed. So the question that needs to be asked, why was agricultural output so poor? The number of opinions out there is quite varied. Now, some might blame Trofim Lysenko, which would probably be a person that we can blame, but we'll get to him in a future podcast, uh, which I'd like to do one just on him. Well, the first answer I come up with was that the system of collectivization was flawed and the lack of incentives to grow more hindered things. A good explanation, but one that probably caused some reduction, but it isn't a complete enough explanation. Next was the increase in the size of the kolhoz, which was believed to have made things more inefficient, but that's a really unsatisfying answer as well. And for what you, for those of you who don't know what the kolhoz was, and that was the collective farms. It was the, uh, the size of the group, and they made those larger than the land that they worked on. Well, my belief is that we need to look back at the historical and geographical evidence and understand that much of Russia isn't the easiest place to grow crops because of the short growing season, poor soil, and, of course, the weather. Yes, the other things mentioned, along with the other problems like poor equipment and inefficiencies within the coal hoses, added to the grief. But I believe the paucity of arable land compared to the population is the main problem and was the main problem for most of Russia's history, as backed by the frequent famines. But this is only my opinion and open to debate. The era of stagnation that marks the rule of the Troika, and in particular Brezhnev's time as the sole leader, began in 1965 with a kind of social stagnation. It also marks the beginning of the modern Soviet dissident movement. Anti-Soviet writing, or even a hint of it, was now forbidden, as both men, Yuli Daniel and Andrei Sinyavsky, and the sh their show trials, they were both found guilty and sentenced to a gulag in Mordovia. Daniel received five years, which he served in full, while Sinyavsky received seven. He was released after six years and allowed to immigrate to Paris. On December 5, 1965, a protest was called for at Pushkin Square in Moscow by friends of the pair, which eventually turned into an annual affair. Arrests were made, but little done to the attendees, as the law that they were arrested for violating, Article 70, was hard to prove, as it was necessary to pr prove intent to harm. Because of that, two new articles were passed, numbers 142 and 190, which made the, quote, dissemination of known falsehoods that defame the Soviet and political and social system a crime. 
also passed were laws that prohibited violations of the public order by a group. While we're seeing a reactionary response to Khrushchev's reforms, not everyone in the Politburo or the Central Committee were arch-conservatives. Even within the ruling Troika, there were reform-minded members. Podgorny and Kasigan were both far more liberal than the real conservative-minded Brezhnev. This began the rift between the group members that Brezhnev used to begin to consolidate his power in his hands. Kosygin, despite the move right within the power structure of the Soviet Union, was able to install a reformist platform for economic change, which was known as the alternatively economic reform of 1969 or 65, the Kosygin reform or the Lieberman reform, based on the writings of Professor Ivsi Lieberman of the Kharkiv National University of Economics. In it, the following tenets or groups of activities were installed. The enterprises, number one, became the main economic units. Two, the number of policy targets was reduced from 30 to 9. The rest remained indicators. Three, economic independence of enterprises. Enterprises were required to determine the detailed range and variety of products, using their own funds to invest in production, establish long-term contractual arrangements with suppliers and customers, and to determine the number of personnel. Four, key importance was attached to the integral indicators of economic efficiency of production, profits and profitability. There was the opportunity to create a number of funds based on the expense or profits, funds for the development of production, material incentives, housing, etc. The enterprise was allowed to use the funds at its discretion. And number five, pricing. Wholesale prices now had to be profitable. This for a communist socialist country. So big changes were coming around. But the impact on the Soviet economy was mixed. Initially, things looked up, but prices on most consumer products and foodstuffs went up 1.5 to 2 times over the next five years. The reforms, while well-intentioned, did not address the one thing that made the economy stay behind the West, and that was the enormous bureaucracy that was interwoven into all aspects of the Soviet society. To suggest that this was purely a Soviet or communist problem is to turn a blind eye to the czarist times. If you remember episode 100, where I answered questions from you, my listeners, one question was, how the czars ruled the vast country without telephones and telegraphs. Bureaucracy was the answer. A huge network of petty bureaucrats ran things, and this was the same with the Soviet system. The people who ran the Soviet Union were known as the nomenklatura. Typically, members of the nomenklatura were also members of the Communist Party, and estimates at the number of people who were in this class of citizens were in excess of 500,000. Almost all the heads of the bureaucracy were either Russian, Ukrainian, or Belarusians, even in the non-Slavic republics within the USSR. Turning towards Eastern Europe, policies of the ruling Troika was to allow more self-determination in economic policies, especially with the government of Janusz Kadar in Hungary and Edward Gierek in Poland. Hungary believed in allowing for moderate free enterprise with retail markets, known as the New Economic Mechanism, which looked a lot like the NEP 
that Lenin installed in the USSR. In Poland, Garrick believed that his country needed loans from the West to help build heavy industry. These reforms were allowed as it reduced the burden of subsidies that the Soviet Union had to provide to their Eastern Bloc allies. But not all was peaceful within the East, and Brezhnev, Kosygin, and Podgorny were faced with a crisis in 1968 in Czechoslovakia. Alexander Dubček, the head of Czechoslovakia, had begun a series of reforms in his country earlier in the year, which included the ending of censorship and political surveillance by the secret police, among a number of other changes, many of which were met with great disdain and concern by the Politburo. This time was known as the Prague Spring, similar to the Arab Spring of 2011. Many Czech citizens were taking to the streets, especially the youth of the country, protesting against Soviet control to their country. Dubček repeatedly promised the Soviet leaders that he would restore order, but he kept delaying things. Month after month went by, and still no changes, which frustrated the Politburo members. Armed intervention was being pushed by some factions, led by Podgorny, Andropov, and the Ukrainian boss, Shalest, were vigorous backers of an invasion. Brezhnev and Kosygin were much more cautious, as they were concerned with what the NATO response would be. By late July, things were coming to a head. On August 3rd, representatives from the Soviet Union, East Germany, People's Republic of Poland, Hungary, Bulgaria, and Czechoslovakia met in Bratislava and signed the Bratislava Declaration, which reaffirmed their belief in the ideals of Marxism-Leninism and vowed to protect the Warsaw Pact from any bourgeois elements were they to infiltrate their countries. The stage was set for a military intervention. Under the guise of war games, 20 divisions of the Warsaw Pact Army had begun to encircle Czechoslovakia. The Politburo tried to negotiate a resolution with the Dubček government, but to no avail. By August 17th, the debate on whether to intervene militarily or not ended with the decision to enter the country and restore order. On the evening of the 20th, Warsaw Pact troops began entering Czechoslovakia. Over 200,000 troops and 2,000 tanks rolled in on the 20th and 21st and began to take positions around the country, especially within the capital of Prague. Dubček and a number of his associates were captured and brought back to Moscow. Protests by the people were nonviolent but sporadic and not well planned. Planning of the invasion was not as robust either as one would expect as the supply lines for the troops were quite thin, causing many of them to beg for food from the citizens of Czechoslovakia, which, as you might imagine, was not forthcoming. The United States, under President Lyndon Johnson, decided against making an issue of the invasion, as they were already embroiled in the Vietnam War, and they wanted to get the Soviet agreement on the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty, or SALT. By the 25th of August, Dubček was returned to Prague, where he was reinstituted censorship and he resumed the use of the secret police to spy on Czechoslovak citizens. By April of 1969, Dubček was removed from power and replaced by a more Moscow-friendly Gustav Husak. Order had been restored. But all this came at a very high price for the Soviet leaders. 
the West had soundly denounced the invasion, but it was within the Eastern Bloc nations that the biggest problems arose. East Germans were upset, but the government suppressed any protests. Polish citizens openly pro protested, as did the Romanians, whose government refused to send troops to support the mission. Albania withdrew from the Warsaw Pact as they supported the Chinese more than Moscow, so this was the right moment to walk out. But the bigger ramification of the invasion was to foment seeds of discontent within the Soviet Union and within the Eastern Bloc countries that was to bloom in the late 1980s and early 1990s, leading to the eventual withdrawal of Soviet troops and the dissolution of the Soviet Union itself. Join me next time as we begin to enter the era of stagnation, the consolidation of power by Leonid Brezhnev, and the beginning of detente with the West. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Don't forget to download the Russian Rulers podcast app at iTunes. And while you're there, rate this podcast to help me move up the podcast rankings. Also, join us on Facebook at the Russian Rulers History Podcast or go to russianrulers.podhoster.com where you can leave a message, make a suggestion, or ask a question. So as always, до свидания и спасибо большое.